This chapter has been about action, informed action, that results in knowledge. And as we are in, move in this last final section of the chapter now, we're moving strongly in the direction of that fruit, the real fruit of detached action with the fruits offered to God, that, that real fruit being knowledge, into the next chapter, which is about knowledge, Gyan Yoga. So from Karma Yoga to Gyan Yoga. We're kind of segueing in here. And Arjun opened the segue with a question about that which impels us to act, even contrary to good advice, good reasoning, scriptural mandates, good examples of others, and so on and so forth. And basically, Krishna has answered, it's ignorance, and it, and it takes the form of kama, of desire, and it expresses itself in different ways, one of which is anger, it means frustration, it means sorrow. And so he's speaking about the the force of, of material desire as the basis of ignorance. This is the devil, so to speak. Ignorance is the devil, and it's rooted. It's not really rooted in the self, but the self is very much covered by that avidya. And so he begins now in his elucidation on the nature of this force. The idea of which here is that knowing about it theoretically, understanding it, gives us some ability to deal with it. So again, the instrument of knowledge for dealing with kama, with desire, is being discussed rather than the full solution of bhakti, which then again, of course, is the highest knowledge as we find in the ninth chapter and so forth. So no contradiction there necessarily, but a gradual explanation is what Krishna is involved in here as to how to resolve the... uh, the problem, all with consideration of eligibility, adhikar, and which is much of also what this chapter has emphasized. Arjun's adhikar is for action. Um, he's entitled to that. He has eligibility for that proper action, scripturally informed action, but not to the fruits of his activity. So as he begins to elucidate on the nature of the, the devil, if you will, the ignorance in the form of desire, it's a strong statement. Think about it. Desire is ignorance. Desire is the devil. I mean, the Buddhists say the same thing. There's a good, good reasoning to it. But again, as we spoke last night, the whole world is moving on the basis of desire. So if we look carefully at that, the world starts to take a very different uh, color. This is taking the life out of one's ability to function, as we discussed to some extent last night, in the world even in what we would consider to be a healthy way. It looks unhealthy if one's a little too spiritually enthusiastic. So Krishna gives an example here as to how this lust expresses itself in relation to different people or to different what might be called stages of, of the development of consciousness, the progression, the flowering, the budding, the fruiting of consciousness. He says that... Uh, As fire is covered by smoke, a mirror by dust, and an embryo by the womb, so one's proper understanding is covered by inordinate desire or kama. So the three examples are thought to refer to, as I said, different developmental stages of consciousness and its 
pursuit of flowering and, and fruiting, which the human life in conjunction with sadhu sangha gives us the opportunity to experience. And um, the first example is we find this desire affecting people in situations analogous to smoke covered by fire. When fire is covered by smoke, it's still burning. It still functions. Dust is the second example. A mirror, I should say, covered by dust. When a mirror is covered by dust, it doesn't function as a mirror, but we still know it to be a mirror, just a non-functioning mirror. And then there's the embryo that's covered by the womb that is not uh, able to discern itself to be what it is, and uh, so a greater degree of covering. This implies, in a general sense, the sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic predominated persons ability or inability to assess the problem, the issue, the problem of desire, and to deal with it. A sattvic person, in other words, is still influenced by this smoke covering the fire, but the fire can burn, and by increasing the fire's burning by the right kind of fuel, then that Smoke will, will dissipate and the fire will predominate and so forth. And, uh, the rajasic predominant person, a person predominated by the rajaguna, which is a far greater number of people than those influenced by the sattvaguna, therefore the limited number of people that can actually do spiritual practice at all, find the clarity to see its importance and participate in it. The rajasic person can't see the importance of it, can't see the value of it, what to speak of participate in it. It doesn't make uh, a lot of sense. Overall, it, the sattvic-influenced consciousness is one that is sometimes said to be such that it cannot be comfortable with the idea of living in a world that doesn't endure. And the rajasic consciousness is all about making a world that doesn't endure, covering that over, forgetting about that, putting that into the background, if at all, and making the world better, making the world better, making, improving it, trying to, to really to find that which the sattvic intelligence says can't be found here, but is worth pursuing nonetheless in a, in a world where it can't be found. So, so it's moving in a very kind of opposite way, and so it can't really identify the problem of desire to look at it from a suffolk point of view, it sees it as unhealthy and uh, world-denying and uh, makes no sense and so forth. They're very much going in, in a different direction. Bhaktivinoda Thakur would, would put the Nishkam Karma Yogi or the, um, the devotee, the, the transcendentalist in the first category. So here we're talking about a, a quality of being Materially speaking, a quality of intelligence, a quality of mind. Sometimes we find we can find, for example, very intelligent people in the world, more educated, more intelligent, more able to grasp concepts, even abstract concepts, which might be a, a way of measuring, quantifying intelligence, the greater ability than some of the devotees have. But they have no ability to embrace a transcendental idea. They may have the ability to make it look less than it is, and reason about it in a powerful way, 
as to why it, it's, it's a folly and, and so on and so forth. So a different kind of quality of intelligence we'll find in the devotee sector, in the transcendentalist sector, even among the neophytes, and then materialistic people. So Bhaktivinathakur, again, we, he will place the transcendentalist in the sattvic mode, particularly we hear this discussion in Nishkam Karma Yogis, and Nishkam Karma Yogis, who offer the fruits of their activity to Bhagavan, a kind of a type of precursor to, to bhakti. There is some bhakti in it. And then the, the, the atheist human, as a rajasic kind of person, who can't see that, that the problem is desire. And they'll reason about it, and sorrow's okay. As I said here, this, this desire turns to sorrow, it turns to frustration, anger, and sorrow. It's something to deal with. You know, they can reason about it, and so on and so forth. He also, interestingly enough, see the moralist in this field, that person who sees, who could be a religious person then. Of course, there are atheists that are moralists also these days and make a, try to make a strong case for why there's atheism does not lend itself to or mandate that one should uh, be immoral, unethical, and so forth. These are some current discussions of the day and so forth. But even the, the implication would be the theistic moralist because he cites the atheist and the moralist. So he's differentiating between the two. So a theistic moralist, someone who's too addicted to the idea that the, the goal of life is to live ethically in this world, perhaps so that you can go to heaven and, rather than mukti, transcendence and so forth. As again, as a rajasic person, although it's said elsewhere later on when these modes of nature, which are kind of under discussion and brief here, are discussed in greater detail, the last six chapters of the Gita in chapter 14, that that, uh, going to heaven involves some sattvic influence. Still, the full influence of sattva, the knowledge and happiness that comes from this, is the view that comes to bear, that the world is temporary and there's a way. It's a window out, so to speak, a window into the self. Then you have the, uh, the womb covered by the embryo, that the person covered by Tamaguna, who I suppose he can't even really discuss the problem, <laughs> uh, further covered, at least in the Rajagun, you can see the mirror, the mirror's covered, and it's not functioning properly, so, but embryo in the womb, idea is completely covered over. So, in this way, although he says here, the problem is calm, and calm is a transformation of the Rajaguna, he's talking about it in the very next verse in relation to sattvic people, rajasic people, tamasic people, if you will, by a general categorization. So, desire is there on all levels. There's some, some rajas there. And then he says what? We're just going to go through this last section here. Briefly, avritam ganam etena ganino nitya vairina kamarupena kontaya dushpurena nanayena cha. So again, he uses the word enemy here, as he did in the first verse that he began explaining the problem. O son of Kunti, even the understanding of the wise contemplative is obscured by this perpetual enemy in the form of lust, which has an appetite like fire. And so again, he has mentioned the enemy an analogy of the insatiable appetite of the fire. It's an enemy, and it's, it burns like fire, and the more you feed it, the more it, uh, it's fueled, and it's never satisfied, and so forth. 
and he has underscored the power of this problem by way of saying here that even the contemplative, who's in a position arrived at through successfully applying oneself in accordance with the instructions given in this chapter, who's come to the knowledge that's the real fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga, may have to deal with this. It's powerful. It can unseat one who's gone through this whole process. It can unseat one. This, again, brings to mind bhakti. As I've said before, the problem here is being dealt with by way of like making a hole and burying it. But the bhakti solution is make the hole, bury it, and build a temple on top of it. It's not coming up again. Something like that. So here... He says that even the jnani, the position of knowledge, arrived at through Nishkam Karma Yoga, one who can sit and be a contemplative and so forth, means satisfied in the Atma and preoccupied with cultivating it and knows, and at least theoretically and to some extent experientially, the difference between matter and spirit can be unseated by this powerful force. And of course, in the literature of the Bhagavatam, we find many examples of that, of Subhari Muni, Vishvamrita, and we find perhaps in the, in the, uh, in the Ramayana, or maybe in the Bhagavad also. Subhari Muni, examples, these examples are given. Big jnanis and a little agitation, the ankle bells of Menaka, disturbing the meditation, and the fish copulating, uh, observed by Sobari Muni in his meditation underwater. I mean, <laughs> you know, now if you take, there was some talk this morning about the efficacy of bhakti in relation to attaining mukti in comparison to gyan, how gyan cannot give mukti. And people will object to that, you know, because there are, there are popular spiritual people who aren't devotees, who don't engage in bhakti, who even teach that gyan, if you can call it that, is. Uh, Introspection, they would say, vichar, gyan, is sufficient, not only sufficient, but is the, if they would say it's, it's probably the, the best and uh, most comprehensive means, the only means in a sense. They may say bhakti may bring you to the capacity of introspection, at which point you can get liberation. So, you know, if we were to say to them, well, you know, here's Subari Muni, he lives underwater, how's that, you know? You won't cite this one and that one who does this and that. This guy's living underwater in meditation for a long time. Bhagavatam is saying that. Now, it sounds hard to fathom and so forth, but the example is given there in an extreme, uh, so to speak, uh, way to make this kind of a point. He saw fish copulating, which does happen underwater, I guess, and he became distracted by that. And... He became unseated from his position. He's underwater. I mean, people would think, this guy's arrived. You know, he's on, he lives underwater. You know, <laughs> how much, you know, who can say he's not liberated? Bhagavatam has a very different idea of what liberation is. It's not about these overt shows of appearances of otherworldliness or, or world-denying. We have many uh, examples of great devotees whose conduct doesn't overtly, isn't filled with apparent renunciation. They've engaged in a yukta vairag, a renunciation in principle of the idea that I'm the owner. 
And meanwhile, with that in place, they may engage in relation to all things with a motive to utilize them in the context of serving Bhagwan. And so their heart, Vaishnavira Kriyamudra, Vigdena Bhujai, difficult to understand the Vaishnav. And by extension, difficult to understand who's a liberated person. The example of that Pundarig Vidyanidhi is there. And Gadadhar was the young bhakta, and he was taken by Mukunda to see Pundarik and as a, to see a great Vaishnav. And he was riding on a palanquin smoking a hookah. And uh, it means he had servants, he was being fanned and everything. And Gadadhar thought for a minute, a great Vaishnava? And Mukunda read his mind and began to sing then a verse from the Srimad Bhagavatam. Oho bhakiyam stanakalakutam, he spoke. Oh, Uddhava's statement, what is the position of Krishna? Putana came to offer her poisonous breasts to him in his infancy. How, what a horrendous thing to do, to bring a mother's breast smeared with poison to a inf- defenseless infant. And the infant Krishna gave her Batsalya rasa. Who in the right mind would take shelter of anyone else? He quoted this verse. More generous person. And of course, Pundarik in Gorlila is the father of Radharani, so he's a taster of Batsalya rasa. He fell off the palanquin. Woo! in a swoon and landed on the ground and ecstatic symptoms began expressing themselves uh, you know, tears and trembling hair standing on end and so Gadara could understand wow that's a that's a Vaishnav <laughs> and sometimes they, they they're not so easy to understand by their actions but if we look carefully then, and with the help of other Vaishnavas we can see what is their what is their underlying motive what is their faith in Bhakti Rupa Goswami makes a similar statement when he says in Upadesha Amrita that we should be careful in evaluating the position of devotees who may have some defect physically. Like the Ganges, may have other things floating in it, but we should not judge the Ganges by what's floating in it, but by what scriptures say about our purifying power. And one thing is the things floating in the Ganges, the other thing is the Ganges. So the disposition of the devotee, so maybe if he maybe have some physical def- deformity or so forth, or another way of speaking about this point, and again about what's important. Is there a God? And if there is, then liberation has to involve understanding clearly that God and situating oneself in relation to the God as a servant in some form or another. And so this idea of liberation that is devoid of that is questionable at best. So, at any rate, there are numerous examples in the literature to illustrate the point that jnana itself is tenuous and susceptible to the powerful influence of desire in the world. You can unseat one from his contemplative position. The example in Chaitanya Charitamrita that uh, seeks to make this point with regard to the efficacy of bhakti in comparison to that of jnana is the example of Thakur Haridas, of course. Thakur Haridas was chanting and Maya personified came to test him in the form of a beautiful prostitute, the story goes. And so he was chanting his, his rounds and he had a vow to chant Three lakhs of names, that's about what um, 
64 times 3 rounds a day. So he was chanting all day night is the point. And so Maya came and, and you can imagine how beautiful of a shape the material energy personified could take within whom, you know, there are, there are many beautiful shapes and so forth. Um, so a real package there. And she begged his indulgence that you can spend a little time, he'd spend a little time with her. And he said, certainly I will, but I have to finish my rounds. And when I'm finished, then I'll certainly indulge you. And so he chanted and she listened and, uh, and he kept chanting, got late and she fell asleep and she woke up and she said, well, did you finish your rounds? She said, that was yesterday's I finished, but you were asleep. Now I'm doing today's rounds. Mm-hmm. So it went on for three days like that. And, uh, she acknowledged this person cannot be unseated by the meat personified. This is the lesson. So compare that to Sabari Muni, and we see the difference between the power, the efficacy of bhakti to deal with the problem of desire, the problem of lust, and that of, of jnana. So Krishna makes the point here to emphasize just how vigilant one should be in relation to this. It's very powerful, again. It's, it's the enemy. And then he talks about where it, it's like a, um, like a battlefield, um, you know, before the battle kind of a discussion. The general says, okay, this is the enemy, and he's got this many troops, and he's really powerful, you know. So don't underestimate his power. And then, you know, he did this, he did that over there. He conquered here, he conquered there. And now he talks about the strategic positions that he's positioned himself in. He says that this uh, kama is seated in the senses, in the mind, in the intelligence. From there it influences the embodied soul, bewildering him and covering his knowledge. So this means he's everywhere. We've approached the enemy and we found that we're surrounded. <laughs> we're surrounded by the enemy. I mean, after all, what is our embodiment constituted of? Senses, mind, intellect. This is the basic idea. So we are made up of these things, materially speaking, and the enemy is well situated in all of them. So we're, he says, the enemy's formidable and he's everywhere. So he's trying to make us not take it lightly and be very, as I say, vigilant to root him out. He says, Tasmat tvam indriyani ado niyamya bhartarshava tapmanam prajahihenam jnana vijnana nashanam. Therefore, O best of the bards, at the very outset, regulate your senses and kill this devil that destroys knowledge and self-realization. So we have the three levels, the senses, the mind, and the intellect. And there's much to be said for out of sight, out of mind. So by controlling the senses in relation to sense objects, we live in an environment like this. It's more suitable. It's not a one where we're being bombarded with the propaganda of, of desire, the lust to enjoy sense objects and so forth. So that's wise. This is a wise thing to live in a place like this, to deal with uh, the problem. And uh, if the senses are cut off from sense objects, to an extent anyway, this is a good... Uh, kind of uh, beginning. Of course, it was mentioned earlier in the second chapter, you just can't, more or less it was said, you just can't cut off your testicles and think that this problem is going to go away. One has to get a higher taste, but 
there's something to be said for creating an environment where you're not being bombarded and from there to build on that and get some experience, higher taste, and then you have some ability to deal with, with the problem. So here is recommended, control the senses. And it implies, as I say, create a, a controlled, somewhat and conducive environment for spiritual practice. After all, this, this desire needs senses to express itself. So if you don't give it vent to express itself, then it may, may go away, kind of, is the idea. And if it's not in the focus of your senses, then after time, I would say, it won't be on your mind either. So, a uh, concerted but well thought out and gradual means for controlling the senses and living in a suitable environment. So, it's recommended. Indriyani praniyahur indriyabhya paramanaha manastu parabudhir yubudhir saha. It is said, Krishna says, that the senses are superior to the sense objects. And the mind is superior to the senses, and moreover, the intellect superior to the mind, superior even to the intellect, is the self. So, Krishna is giving the material hierarchy, and then he speaks about the self, which, of course, is categorically different than matter. The senses, mind, intelligence being the material hierarchy. The point being kind of here is that by knowing the self, which is the object of Nishkam Karma Yoga, you come to a place where there's no, there's no calm, there's no lust. So uncovering that self, then where the lust is seated, that in the mind, senses, and intellect can all be dealt with. Knowing the self, in other words, is the solution. This is what he's emphasizing here. And as we learn, we go on, of course, full knowing of the self is knowing Bhagwan because the self is a relational. It, it exists in relation to something. It's a shakti. That's not brought out here entirely, but we know that from the balance of the Gita. I think there's some interesting commentary here on the word saha. The word saha in this verse means this or he. It refers to either kama itself or to the individual soul or God. I've just explained it as in relation to the individual soul, which is the most common understanding. If we understand the word sa as a reference to kama, the principal subject of this section, the verse, such a rendering serves to stress the power of desire. It can corrupt all. It is the all-powerful enemy of the soul. Without understanding the power of kama, however, a more plausible rendering here for sa is the individual soul. Above the intellect is the soul a unit of consciousness by knowing it as a unit of consciousness. Oneself as a unit of consciousness, one can conquer calm. This is confirmed in the next verse. Last verse of the chapter, a long and interesting chapter. Krishna says, Evam buddhe param buddhva samstabhyatmanamatmana jahishatra mahabaho kamarupam durasadam. Thus knowing oneself to be superior to the intellect, control the mind with the intellect. In this way, O mighty armed one, destroy this unconquerable enemy in the form of desire. So again, this is now the segue into the next chapter where Krishna begins to speak about Jnana Yoga, from Karma Yoga to Jnana Yoga. Any question? Yeah. Uh, I still don't quite understand the relationship between Mishra Sattva and Shudra Sattva. Like, 
I read from somewhere, I forget from where, that if there's no influence of rajas and tamas, Mishra Sattva becomes Sudra Sattva basically. Here you're using the word Sattva as existence, mm-hmm. not as the mode of goodness. So a mixed existence is an existence that's mixed where the pure existence of the self is mixed with matter. Shuddha sattva is an existence that's unmixed by the influence of matter. Vishuddha sattva is like then bhakti, we could say. Sometimes shuddha sattva is also used to refer to bhakti, but vishuddha sattva means very pure existence. So it might be said that if you remove matter, material covering from the soul, you've got a shuddha sattva, a pure existence. It's got a passport. If you give a visa to Golok, then Vishuddha Sattva, Sandini Shakti, a very pure, extraordinary, especially a pure existence, suitable for Bhagavan's pastime. So you're not using it in relation to Sattva Guna. So even knowledge of the self could be called Suddha Sattva? Self-realization would be called Suddha Sattva. Mm-hmm. But a sattvic existence would be a mishra sattva, right. Right. a mixed existence. Another question? Kind of similar as uh, we mentioned, the team like heaven, for example, would be there's some influence of sattva there, so there's still rajas there as well, apparently. Yeah, I guess I had always heard it seemed like that the, you know, the godly realm, the Avengers realm, will not be pretty much just predominated by sattva. One, see, these modes are not found purely independent or unmixed with one another in the world. Mm-hmm. So you find a preponderance of, a predominance of a mode that corresponds with a particular environment. But it's not that the others aren't there. I guess that would make sense because even the gods sometimes Fair amount of rajas going on up there. <laughs> <laughs> and you might note also that the uh, heaven is said to be an unconducive place for spiritual advancement. So, a purely, you know, a more, more sattvic situation has one fixated on something beyond heaven. And you have the other the celibate abodes and so forth, where spiritual practices is conducive. There, it's very conducive for sense enjoyment because there aren't there's not the same measure of corresponding sorrow. Things last much longer. And it seems like you're going to live forever. And you know, If you were told today, you know, okay, Chidahari, you've got about a billion years to live. I mean, that's... <laughs> what effect do you... In a, you know, particularly, I say, well, i got time. You know, it's like, wow, okay, you know. That's their situation. And not only that, but the things that, that you do and, and enjoy, they don't have the same repercussions. That's the fruit of your activity on earth, that you're in a situation like that. So it's not desirable from a spiritual perspective. But it's arrived at by recognizing authority. And so spiritual life is, is, is kind of evaluated, graded like this, the extent to which one acknowledges authority, which you can see is so much in contrast with, with the modern 
Western-influenced world. Follow no one. That guy with the shoes, you know, follow no one. And he runs into somebody else who's also following no one. Hey, they're all about the same shoes. Wait a minute, you know, we're following that. We're all following the same sign. So you can't get around, around it. But there's a you know, heaven, if, if you will, is like a very predominant... Uh, it's arrived at by a very strong acknowledgement of authority. Now, you know, what the nature of the authority is, isn't as clear. And therefore there's bargaining with and what you think you can get from the authority and there's an acknowledging for a purpose and, for, and so on. But therefore it's pious anyway. And it, to have a scar for that, accepting authority, I mean, that's good Good fortune, conducive. What's the time? Okay, well, we'll stop there. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Umakyana timirandasya, Kyananjana salakaya, Chakshuru militame natasme, Sri Guru Venamaha, Sri Guru Vaishnav Gupram Paraki jai. Simad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Sri Sri Krishna Arjun ki jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda ki jai, Gaur Prem Nande. This evening we begin chapter 4, Gyan Yoga. And uh, there are three introductory verses to the chapter. Let's discuss, begin our discussion of them. Sri Bhagavan Uvacha, Imam Vibhaspate Jogam, Proktavan Aham Avyayam. Vibhaswan manave prahur manur ikshvakave bravit. Sri Bhagavan said that I explained this imperishable science of yoga to Vibhaswan. Vibhaswan spoke to Manu and Manu in turn imparted it to Ikshvaku. So, question may arise here, what yoga are you talking about? Because he's been talking about Nishkam Karma Yoga. And the title of this chapter is Gyan Yoga. So is he speaking about what he has spoken about, Nishkam Karma Yoga? Is he speaking about what he's going to now speak about, this yoga that I'm now going to explain to you, that I explained previously? This question may arise. And also, we have seen throughout that there seems to be some underlying emphasis on bhakti, certainly Nishkam Karma Yoga that was explained by Krishna included the element of bhakti because it was a particular type of Nishkam Karma Yoga where not only the fruits of one's action were given up, but they were offered to Bhagavan. And in the previous chapter, we heard him speaking covertly about bhakti. Uh, We found this in the second chapter also. We know that this section on yoga that covers the first six chapters culminates in an emphasis on bhakti yoga as the best of yogas. We also know that where bhakti yoga is discussed, then there must be two. There must be tat and there must be twam. Tat twam, asi, as the Upanishadic dictum goes, thou art that, or as Chaitanya Mahaprabhu thought of it inappropriately, so thou art thine, I'm not sure how that old English goes, but you are his, something like that, a kind of a more dynamic idea of oneness. This tattvamasi is the 
mantra of for sannyas in the school of Shankar, or one of the major dictums, if you will, of the Shruti that is to be meditated upon. And I believe, now that I think about it, that it was considered by Shankar to be the Mahabhakya, the main sound. Mahabhakya, Vakya means like sound, so the most important sound of all the Upanishads, you are that. And he interpreted it to, into a, a Dvaitic understanding, that there's no difference between Jiva and Brahman. And this was what his knowledge, if you will, is all about. Now, this is a chapter about Gan Yoga, but it's important here to note, as I'm pointing out, that we find in this chapter that thus far, in the previous chapter, there's primarily been knowledge of Twum, but here's some knowledge of Tut is also coming, and that Tut is Bhagavan Sri Krishna himself. There's a small, a short, but very significant departure here, if you will, or preface to the whole chapter in which Krishna introduces himself as, as God, as Tat, as that with whom you would have a relationship. Avatar Tattva is discussed. This is a kind of a preface to or a taste of the theology of the Gita, just coming in short but very profound way in the beginning of this chapter. It will, of course, be developed in full in the middle six chapters. There, Krishna speaks without any hesitation about himself. He's got Arjuna in a particular position there. He feels comfortable tooting his own horn, if you will, uh, which you don't want to do in front of just anybody and everybody. It won't be appreciated. So he does it a little bit here. And so the kind of knowledge that is described in this chapter obviously includes knowledge of tat and tvam. And there's a differentiation between the two while at the same time there's an identity uh, is forged, so to speak, or is an identity between the two. Is light is shed on that as well by way of shedding light on the difference between our present sense of identity and ourselves and so forth, so our likeness to Bhagavan. So there's obviously what we call sambandagyan, knowledge of relationship in this chapter. Who can deny it? It's very powerfully introduced right at the onset of the chapter, a point that's perhaps overlooked by many people who look at this chapter as Gyan Yoga and don't find much room for bhakti there. Also, we find here what, in the very beginning verse, so what yoga is he talking about? Is it karma, Ishkam Karma Yoga? Is it Gyan Yoga? Is it Bhakti Yoga? And also, in this verse, as I was about to say, with regard to bhakti yoga, we have an important word here that describes this yoga, this yoga that he's going to speak about, that he taught previously. What is that? He says, Imam Vibhashvate Yogam Proktavan Aham Avyayam. What does Avyayam mean? It means imperishable, eternal. We might wonder how eternal is Nishkam Karma Yoga. It might come to our mind, at least in terms of how we've been discussing the Bhagavad Gita, <laughs> or how eternal is the fruit of Nishkam Karma Yoga, which is Gan, which is associated with what? Sattva. Not in the Nirguna, but Sattva. And Bhakti, as we know from the second chapter, is what? 
Nistrigunyo. It is nigun. It is above the three modes of nature. So it is imperishable in a full sense of the term. We may be able to find ways in which to talk about Nishkam Karma Yoga in terms of being imperishable or Gyan Yoga, independent of bhakti or without emphasizing the bhakti necessary in them for them to be fruitful, speaking more about them on their face ostensibly, but in a very easy way, in a very natural way, we can speak about how bhakti is imperishable comparatively to Nishkam Karma Yoga, whether it's practice or it's fruit, which is gyan and and thereby Gyan Yoga also. And while we are weighing in on this question, what yoga, this yoga, what yoga, as I mentioned, there are three introductory verses to the chapter, and the third of them speaks to Arjuna as it, Bhaktosi me sakacheti, rahasyahi etad uttamam. It's the first place where bhakti is mentioned in the whole book, and it's mentioned in relation to Arjuna, because you are my bhakta. That's why I'm going to tell you this. Rahasyam, which is a famous word in the Gaudiya vernacular that refers to bhakti. Rahasyam means secret. And of course, Rajavidya, Rajaguhyam. Ninth chapter, Krishna speaking about Rajaguhyam. Guhyam means hidden, means secret. The king of secrets I'm going to speak to you about now full on, and it's bhakti, as we find out in that chapter. It's unalloyed bhakti, shuddha bhakti. So that rahasyam in this third verse of the introductory is speaking about bhakti. It's not a stretch that he's speaking it to Arjun because he's a devotee, says something to <coughs> us. And friend, we have to go there when we get further to develop those ideas. And here, as is presented here in this verse, is abhyayam. It is imperishable. All this gives us some room to reason that the real yoga that's being talked about, another reason here in all these chapters, is really bhakti. Thakur Bhaktivedanta sees this whole proverbial yoga ladder as more or less different stages culminating in bhakti for different persons. So bhakti is the real full idea of yoga. And it comes out here to an extent. So this yoga, I'm going to speak to you about. We have different ways to think about it. Chakrapati Vishwanath, uh, he uh, speaks of it in terms of Gyan Yoga. Baladeva Dibhushan, I believe, is in terms of Nishkam Karma Yoga. We're speaking about it in terms of Bhakti. <clears throat> so different ways to think about it. But again, we should remember that with Nishkam Karma Yoga and Gyan Yoga, between these two, if we're differentiating, there's not much of a discussion because the two are really one, Arjuna has said, or Krishna has said, right? They're one type of devotion, one type of faith, he said. But for different people, with different levels of eligibility, they'll apply themselves accordingly. So I think the Bhakti Vinataka would say it like this. They're all Bhakti, but for different people, it would be applied differently according to their eligibility, the budding, the development of their faith and understanding and so forth. So here we find about whatever this yoga is, <laughs> that this yoga is um, not something new. It's imperishable, so it's going on forever, and it, its beginnings, at least, are very ancient. Krishna's invoking some very old people in the uh, Hindu cosmology here, 
And of course, it will strike Arjuna. As much as Krishna is seeking here to cite the historical background to his teaching, that it might have more credibility in the eyes of Arjuna. In other words, Krishna wants to say, I'm not just making this up, but you know, it's been around since as long as the sun's been around here. You know, so it's very old and uh, been with us for a long time, so that lends some credibility to a thing. That's why they speak about the big uh, you know, Ivy League university. It means that the walls are covered with ivy. That takes a while to grow up on. They've been there. They're you know, pillars of uh, bastions of, of knowledge, and they haven't been you know, taken apart and blown down and overturned by a new the Maharishi's you know, university in Iowa. It hasn't become more popular yet. You know, so it's, uh, it lends some credibility to it. Endurance of a thing lends credibility. We give more credibility to our waking experiences than we do to our dream experiences for the simple matter that they're more enduring or they appear to be more enduring. They last longer. In the big scale of things, they don't last very long, so we shouldn't give them very much credence. <laughs> but of course we do. And so, At any rate, for the sake of securing his students' faith, Krishna gives a reference to this is not something new that I'm talking about here. This has been around for a long time. You should be aware of that. And big people are involved in it, important people. One time, some of Prabhupada's disciples asked Prabhupada that if this bhakti and Krishna consciousness is so great, then why aren't the most intelligent people in the society taking it up? They had a doubt. Of course, at the time, Prabhupada replied, he did it without kind of thinking. He said, they are. Shiva, Narada, Brahma. So his like picture of the world and who the people are was very like, oh, well, that, you know, we heard about those people, but we mean, you know, real people, you know. But for Prabhupada, it was a very real kind of a response. Well, they are, you know, there's the Brahma and Shiva and Arda. And that was his perspective, his frame of reference, if you will. Sridharmaj was asked the same question, and um, I think he replied um, from Bhagavatam, the first verse, what does it say there? that even the most intelligent, the God, even the gods are bewildered about this. This is very, this is rahasyam, this is a secret, this is a special thing. It's just, it's for intelligent people, the most intelligent people, but the most intelligent people, they are people who have what? The most sukriti, sukritivan, who are possessed of sukriti. Therefore, it is mentioned in Bhagavatam what? with regard to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's dispensation. Yajnaisam kirtana prayer yajantihi sumedasa. Medasa means intelligent, so sumedasa, very intelligent. This is meant for the very intelligent people. Very intelligent people, it says in Kali Yuga, they take to the Yuga Dharma. The Dharma of Sankirtan, inaugurated by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu with his associates and so forth and so on. And um, in explaining that, Sumedasa, Pujapachita Marishmi declared, this means they have fine theistic 
intelligence derived from Sukriti, that by association with bhakti they develop that Sukriti and that capacity to understand these topics. This is, should be very clear to us because you just take a, you know, a perusal over the internet about what is you know, Krishna consciousness, what is bhakti, and you're going to find so many confused ideas among initiated devotees. And all you can look at and say is, these people, this guy doesn't have the Sukriti to understand what he's talking about here, what he's writing about, what that verse means when he quotes it. He doesn't get it. And they're quoting the verse and making the point as if, I mean, they're putting themselves out there, right, on the Internet. You know, I wrote this article, and I'm really behind it. And this is, here it is, the Scripture says this. And I'm looking at it like, huh? Man, you really missed, you, you read the Scripture, you're repeating the verse and connecting it with this verse, but you're not a dumb person. You can, you know, write an article that seems that has logical progression, but if anybody has Sukriti enough, fine theistic intelligence to know what the texts are really saying has a feel for them, they think that you don't know what you're talking about. So there's a huge, I mean, I'm just bewildered by it, you know. Every time I I see it, there's just so much of it. Um, So Sukriti, who doesn't have sufficient sumedas, fine, developed theistic intelligence as a result of what? Not exercising your brain. That's not where it comes from. Not doing, you know, taking IQ tests and, you know, learning, I don't know, what those kind of quirky questions, you know, how to answer them. Or, you know, like Gorvijay, Gorvijay has been interviewing for his job. He's got his PhD and he's interviewing for his job. Indian, some of you know him, disciple of mine at Georgia Tech. And um, so he, his, his field is, what is it? It's math and IT and... Aerospace. It was aerospace, but it's a lot of math and uh, systems and... Um, models and projections and a lot of math anyway. So they, they ask in the interview, that I said, what kind of questions do they ask you? He said, well, they asked me, like, how many tigers are in Africa? I said, what? And he said, well, there's a way that you're supposed to be able to think about that. And you think, there's this many countries in Africa, there's this many people in Africa, you know, and you make this and you come up with a reasonable calculation. And so, you know, this is a real brain, they're real brain teaser, brain exercise type things. But this kind of intelligence does, and way of exercising intelligence does not give us the capacity to understand bhakti. In fact, it could do the opposite. Bhagavatam is, gives a good bashing to the intellect, wants to put it in its place. We heard here that one of the haunts of lust is the intellect. We didn't hear it that it's in the soul. It's not in the soul. By knowing the soul as different from mind, intellect, and senses, we can conquer over that which is within those and getting in the way of my knowing, seeing, experiencing myself, and so forth. So it's very clear in these texts there's this way to come about understanding them through association, through bhakti. You develop this ability. And I see it in my disciples. He has a certain amount of sukriti to understand better she doesn't, or I want to be the case, and so forth. And you, and you want to engage them in such a way that, that, that will, they will develop. It's a developing of a quality of intelligence. And so you see that logic fails, ultimately. It's not by logic that we'll be able to convince anyone and everyone. You invoke logic, but the logic of bhakti will only be embraced by someone who has sufficient sukriti to 
go with the concepts. I don't mean that it's illogical, but it's as logical as any other path, more logical than some, but still, logic is very limited in language in terms of explaining what bhakti is about. We do a pretty good job of it, but if you've got the sakriti, you can catch it, you can go with it, and so on. So the other answer of Sridhar well, intelligence isn't the qualification for understanding bhakti. The gods are, you know, they don't get it entirely. They're bewildered by it. So it's a special kind of knowledge. As I've said before, the knowledge and yoga, this isn't the kind of knowledge that we can take and put in our files and use them to further our cause. It's the knowledge that, that make it part of our agenda. It has an agenda of its own, and we find out that we are on it, and wow, that's different. It's a living thing. It's not a dead thing, so to speak. It's that we can use to further our dead body flapping for a few moments only. That uh, is what material life is more or less about, not much more. So, anyway, Arjun is seeking to secure his faith, and he cites the history of this, and big people he mentions. He says, here, big people are involved in this. Wow, it must be important, you know. The sun god, and Manu, and... And, of course, he accurately places himself in relation to them as a superior, their teacher. Now, so this is the, this is the beginning wherein, in the context of trying to secure Arjuna's faith, Krishna adds an element of confusion that will cause him, after three verses, to say, wait a minute, my head's spinning here. You're sitting on the chariot. You tell me you told it to the sun god a long time ago? How are you there? And how are you here now? And that and so on and so forth. So he throws an element of confusion, which gives him the opportunity to talk more about himself and bring out a little bit of the precursor to the theology, who he is, who Krishna is, and the difference between himself and Arjuna, who has had many lives but doesn't know about them, but, but Krishna has had many and he knows them. So we may look like we're the similar, but we're, we're not the same. So, imam vibhashvate yogam pruktavan aham avayam Again, big, big royal, noble people, kings, the educated class of people, and so forth. He says, this is handed down to them. Of course, we'll find out in a couple of verses that being a big king, again, and being intelligent, and so forth, they did take it up, but that's not the reason that they were able to. The reason that Krishna becomes disposed to speak this to someone is very different. Arjuna is his friend. Arjuna is his devotee. So, very important uh, introductory verses here, as we'll see also in the context of introducing the, the theology, Sambandha Gyan, in the, in the chapter about Gyan Yoga. He speaks about its history, if you will, in the world, and also about the way in which it is handed down. So he's beginning to talk here about, as we'll be clear in the next verse, the system of parampara, one after another, which is one of the most misunderstood, one of the simplest and basic topics to bhakti that you could find. That Prabhupada, for example, as an acharya, made crystal clear, but is one of the most misunderstood uh, concepts in the community of Bodhi uh, Vaishnavas. So we'll go into that in some depth as we discuss on the second verse tomorrow. Are there any questions?
Yes, sir. It's kind of a further question from mine yesterday. I hope you don't mind, but it relates to this. If Gyan is sattvic, like Gyanis are cultivating knowledge of the self, which is transcendental to the Buddhas, so is that Gyan still sattvic too? I mean, you've been speaking about it like that, but it, Is knowledge of the self sattvic? Yeah. It, sh- it sheds light on the self. In sattvagun we can discriminate between matter and spirit. We have that kind of ability. The quality of, of sattva is, is knowledge, or twofold. Knowledge and happiness. It implies like coming in proximity of the self. But Maybe your question further is, is self-realization sattvic? That doesn't make sense, right? So it's not, no. Self-realization or realizing the difference between the self and matter is, is transcendental. Or realizing Brahman, let's say. That's what the Ganis would like to do. That's not their realization. Their end is not sattvic. But... I think that their their method is a sattvic method unto itself without bhakti. It's um, largely the, the study of the scripture and introspection and so forth. And so the question is, how fruitful will it be in and of itself in terms of realizing the transcendental knowledge, reality of uh, Brahman? It's supposed to be like beyond knowledge, Something like that, Brahman. It's the whole knowledge, it's beyond knowledge. So the point is, to what extent knowledge is a tool for understanding knowledge, <laughs> right? Ultimate knowledge. The tool is limited, and so, therefore, we call it sattvic. He gets the capacity to do jnana yoga, means he or she gets uh, the predominant influence of sattva, and can sit and contemplate and mostly I'm not that familiar with it but Gyan Yoga there are some there's one I've heard of a prominent Gyan Yogi you and I watched a video of that guy uh, well you know he had the blackboard and he was showing what is non-duality you know so that's their process the process is just like <laughs> you know that's what it's, it's introspection. It's really it's really a brain exercising. So we see it as rather an ascending path. You kind of like exercise your brain till you you can't anymore about these things. And I don't know. Then it, it's supposed to evaporate, and your, the knowledge evaporates, and you're you become realized. You know, I'd have to. I'm, I don't mean to be facetious, or, but I'm oversimplifying. I'm not that aware of the actual it, it, uh, the method of. Gyan Yoga, but basically, like Mahaprabhu was told by Prakashananda Sarasati, you have to study the, uh, the scriptures, you know, contemplate the meaning here. It's kind of like a Zen, you know. You know, what is one hand clapping? You're supposed to sit there and think, what is one hand clapping? What is one? Like that. And, it's a, and then something's supposed to happen as a result of that. You get a Satori, you know, you get a, like a, you, you, you thought so much that you're, you're short out, so to speak. And that's the best I can, you know, think of it to describe it. But, of course, we will say that to attain Brahman, you require bhakti. You require a transcendental method to you know, arrive at a transcendental destination.
That's not unreasonable. And the idea that bhakti is transcendental is very easy to support. The idea that jnana is transcendental is not easy to support. Even a jnani won't, doesn't accept that. So I guess they see that you know you go from through the modes to, to sattva, and in sattva you're in a position to you know, make a leap or something like that, you know, and, and to, to, to shut the whole thing down, to shut the whole influence of the modes down. You know, if you know enough, then you stop acting karmically, and I know it doesn't make a lot of sense because we're devotees, but... And then they will take bhakti and make it subordinate to, to jnana, but we don't. We say no. We say that bhakti is transcendental, and and, if, and you can only give what you have. So if sattva doesn't have Brahman, how can it give Brahman? Of course, they will say that Brahman comes in a sattvic form. I guess they'll say that, right? As Krishna <laughs> and teaches. But what does he teach then? That's our question. Yeah. I just want to clarify. So then, if it requires bhakti, but then most jnanis view bhakti as sattvic, right? What? Most jnanis view bhakti as sattvic. They do. So does that constitute an offense to bhakti, and therefore we could say that probably not too many jnanis are... That's what Vishnu Chakurti Thakur says, yeah. There's also the interesting purport, I think, isn't it Baladeva who talks about bhakti taking a sattvic um, form for the jnanis? Vishmachagurti Thakur mentions that. Not actually sattvic, it's... Um, Reference to the third cano, Kapilatev's teaching to his mother, where bhakti is talked about in different modes. It says that the bhakti is in different modes, but the practitioner is in a particular mode. And so there's, there's mentioned sattviki bhakti. And then Vishmachagurti Thakur says, it's this sattviki bhakti that voluntarily subordinates herself to gyan to give the jnanis what they want and keep them away from Bhagwan, which they don't want to be near, and he doesn't want to be near them. So bury them in the Brahman, something like that. That's kind of the idea. Yes? Um, you used the uh, term uh, they bring, the jnanis, um, they try to like think until their brain short out. But I remember in some of your other talks you said how you used that in like a good way that something along the lines of devotee will think, you know, could be thinking about itself, but we want their brains to, you know, just short out a little bit and just serve, or something like that. But. Yeah, not a bad idea to short out your brain. <laughs> but um, if you don't have any bhakti, then it may fall a little short. <laughs> if you don't have a heart that continues on, then what? <laughs> If your brain dies, but you don't have a heart, then what? <laughs> so we say, as long as you have a heart, and let the brain die, let the heart go on. They're without a heart, so. And for them, brain dead means dead. For us, brain dead means that's where it all begins. Heart unencumbered by the brain. It can be all it can be. The gamis are... Are not considered transcendentalists, or in one sense... These gannies don't even exist, practically. I mean, today's world. But anyway, they're considered transcendentalists, yeah. I mean, in the, really, in the context of the Gita, these gannies are not the people who we, like, you know, are against. They're like, it's a, it's a precursor to the full face of devotion. 
Therefore, as I say here, the, the subject is Gyan Yoga and some of the Gyan is being given. It's not that the book opens up and says, here's you know, a chapter on uh, Gyan Yoga. You should know there's no difference between Jiva and, and Brahman. Krishna doesn't say that. He starts talking about himself and the difference between the Jiva and the Brahman. So we see this kind of Gyan that we sometimes critique as just like some, there's no basis for this. This is just something that's been... Yeah, masquerading as gyan. Nishkam karma yoga, where the fruits are offered to Bhagwan. I mean, Krishna's not out of the picture here. It's not, you know, and, and, and then the, the result of that is coming to knowledge of the self and the likeness between oneself and Bhagwan. Bhagwan hasn't disappeared here. You've been offering the fruits to him. He doesn't just disappear out of the picture in chapter 4. No, he comes into the picture even more fully. And then we see in chapter 5 that where Nishkam Karma in chapter 3 and Karma and, and Gyan Yoga in chapter 4 have been discussed kind of exclusively, although there's always a little, little overlapping. Excuse me, you come to chapter 5 and they're intertwined again. And then it all builds up, culminates in bhakti. And then Krishna starts directly talking about Tut you know, in, in great detail in the middle six chapters. So it's an aberration, you know, this. this uh, this non-dual we don't accept it at all that the jiva and the brahman and the brahman are one ever in a full sense of the term in which they speak of it in a qualified form there's a sauja and that's understood i mean according to this um baladevijabhushan sauja is is just part of vaikuntha yeah, everybody has a oneness with brahman with bhagwan you know the Paramatma. Krishna Scholars has a little bit of a different take on it, and he's like talking about these kinds of, this kind of aberration, if you will. That's why it's harder to talk about. If we talk about all the context of Bhakti, it all sounds good, you know. But these other guys fight over here, like this other path, and it's like, and they put making Bhakti subordinate to it, and so forth. So they've confused the issue, not the Gita, not Krishna. He's speaking the whole Gita, and they want to take him out. <laughs> they want to do away with him, you know. It's like, what could be more offensive? And I read one guy's commentary years ago. He said, and Krishna says, just think of me. And it doesn't mean him. It could be a cockroach. Anything. Just fix your mind on anything. I thought, God, what an offensive thing to say. You know, the object of the meditation is, is arbitrary. How do you get that from the Bhagavad Gita? He keeps saying, me, 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 and... He doesn't say anywhere. It could be me. It could be anything. I'm just saying me. Because, you know, it could be a cockroach. You know, thanks for the commentary, but you know, and we're offended by that, and for good reason. So all right, we'll stop this. Shrimad Bhagavad Gita ki jai. Oh, Brahmananda.